We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our study of Shahab Ahmad, what is Islam? We are on page 80. And what paragraph is it? Is it the fact should uh, and must give us profound pause? I think it's the paragraph that says the fact should give us, should and must give us profound pause. You see that? Yeah. Okay, why don't you read? Okay. This fact should and must give us profound pause as to what it is that constitutes the normative and the historical experience of Muslims. After which instructive moment of contemplation, we should recognize once and for all that these ideas and behaviors constituted part and parcel of the norms of thought and conduct of Muslims. Okay, so what do we mean by normative? How would you understand that? Like what's normal? Yeah, basically what's normal. Meaning, what do we find as the standard practice of Islam from east to west, north to south? From an anthropologist's perspective, there's no such thing as normative. Because an anthropologist is looking at very specific cultures. Here's how they do things in Bridgeview, but here's how they do things in Orland Park, but here's how they do things at Loyola. Right? They would say there's nothing normative. From a sociological perspective, which is looking at how do people organize themselves, they'll say, yeah, Muslims in America will tend to have like this big mosque Right, um, that nowadays they may have Eid there, but Eid might take place in a hotel or in another location, as opposed to back overseas, you'll have the mosque, the musalla on your street, and then you have a jamia masjid for Juma, and then you have another space for Eid, right? And so, um, and so the question becomes, trying to figure it becomes trying to figure out what is normative Islam, which is essentially sort of the big question of this whole book. Like when he's asking, what is Islam? Okay, let's continue. By norm, I mean that which Muslims, that is, the significant body of Muslims who held these ideas and practiced these behaviors, who in the historical example I'm highlighting, were quite simply the most powerful and influential social group in Islamic history, namely the educated and cultivated Sunni and Shia elites of the Balkans to Bengal complex and the areas under its shadow in the half millennium, 1350 to 1850, valorize that worse as neutral and at best as positive, or that which these Muslims regarded at the very least as legitimate and acceptable and at most as how things should ideally be. Okay, so we did talk a little bit about this in the last session, but the point being that um, for much of this stretch of time, who represented the ideal of Islam? In some areas, it'd be the royalty. In other areas, it'd be the scholars, but very often the scholars themselves would get patronage by, by the royalty. And so, our era, we don't have as much royalty, but we do have royalty like in Saudi Arabia, we do have dictators. Um, I don't know of any of these regions where the heads of state are looked at as the ideals of Islam um, in the ways they may have in the past. Uh, I don't know, just because I don't know those regions, you know, intimately in that perspective. Um, but in our society, our Muslim community in America, who do we look to as people who are showing like how Islam ideally should be? Scholars. To some degree the scholars, and I'd say specifically it's like the celebrity scholars, mm. right? And to lesser degree it may be the local scholars, but uh, I think it's more the celebrity scholars and the celebrity preachers, and the people who are basically on screen or on stage, right? Um, and I'd make the same point about them that I'd make about royalty, that a lot of that is performance rather than actual living practice. You know? 
Okay, let's continue. These ideas and behaviors constitute a commonplace and standard part of the ways in which the cultivated and thoughtful Muslims who engaged in them thought and lived as Muslims. These societies of persons thought and lived these things without regarding themselves as transgressing thereby what is meant to be a Muslim. Indeed, these ideas and behaviors were construed as paradoxical as it might seem to be not only in harmony with, but actually as somehow articulating the meaning and truth of Islam. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when we're talking about how Islam should ideally be, that becomes synonymous with living the truth of Islam. And, and that becomes a really serious question because that means, you know, whomever it is people are turning to, to embody Islam, that means that people are mimicking them you know, or aspiring to be like them. And I think it's just in the nature of American culture that we revere people who are on screen. You know? And that's whether we're talking about the Kardashians, whether we're talking about, about President Obama, whether we're talking about you know, any of our celebrity preachers. That is our tendency. And, and so, like, imagine you have, like, okay, name, uh, who would name any celebrity preacher, any Muslim preacher. Okay, so let's say you have Sahib Webb. Um, um, and locally, you have Sohaib Webb's teacher, okay, whom nobody knows by name. Okay. Everyone's going to want to go see Sohaib Webb, because he's the, he's a superstar, even though his teacher might be literally in front of you. And so, so that creates, <clears throat> you know, a whole ethos, then, of how we then define our Islam. That if this celebrity preacher on screen says something is okay or not okay, we will turn to them. The celebrity preacher may have no skills whatsoever. Right. Uh, so Hey Webb, you know, has Azhari training. Uh, some of these celebrity preachers have almost nothing except charisma. But that is the common element of all of them. It is charisma. You know. Think of any popular preacher who does not have charisma. Can you think of any? I mean, there may be some whom you may feel don't have charisma, but I mean, can you think of any that doesn't have charisma or isn't a good speaker? I need more of a really dry in a presentation. Like a, it's fine if you name them, yeah, because they're public. I, I went to Jeff Amin's class once. Yeah, but he's not a celebrity preacher. Really? <laughs> yeah. He's pretty popular. He's popular, but meaning, um, you know, most people outside of Chicago don't know who he is. Okay. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a very, yeah, exactly, he's, he's, a, he's a giant scholar, um, but he's, he illustrates the example okay. that he's not a dynamic speaker, mm -hmm. right? If he was a dynamic speaker, um, and then on top of that, if he was on screen, then he'd have people flocking to him. Mm -hmm. so, but think of all like the YouTube stars, right? Uh, or all the people that would be speaking like at ISNA on yeah. the main platform. I don't think Sheikh Amin will ever be invited to speak on the main platform of ISNA. Because mm -hmm. he's not the type of draw, he doesn't have the type of charisma. Yeah. And so, so that's something to be very conscious of in terms of what, where we're getting our Islam, especially where we're getting the type of Islam we want to aspire to. Okay, continue. I had a question about the truth of Islam. Wouldn't yeah. that be subjective? Or is he referring to, like, that actual truth of Islam? No, so here we're talking about um, if, if we're turning to celebrity speakers showing us how Islam should ideally be, we're effectively saying that those are the people who embody the truth of Islam. So it's 100% subjective, it would be, yeah. but I'm saying it's, it may not even be remotely accurate. Right. Right. Like, okay, look at how this person presents their Islam. That is what Islam is. 
but it's all it is is just what their words are, mm. you know, and and so that's what we mean by the truth of Islam. Okay. It's, it's probably better to put it into quotes, the truth of Islam. Yeah. Right. Okay. In short, the Balkans to Bengal is a complex of societies in a post-formative state of being Muslim, a productive human condition grounded upon the synthesis of discursive and institutional elements worked through and built up during the first six centuries of Islam on the basis of which many Muslims found themselves equipped and disposed to strike out in new constructions, trajectories, tenors, and expressions of what it means to be Muslim. Okay, so that becomes a core question. What does it mean to be Muslim? What do I do? What do I think about? How do I live? How do I be? And this was constructed. This isn't just like uh, formed by evolution. Uh, it is probably fair to say that much of Islam in America formed by evolution. Like, okay, first we started making this, then we started making this, then we started making that. And what I mean by that is people didn't think, you know, with a 100-year plan or a 500-year plan. They probably thought with at most a 10-year plan, right? right? And another way to think about that is that very often a mosque, a multi-million dollar mosque will be built, and within like two years, it'll be overflowing in terms of size. And it's not designed in such a way that it can be expanded upon. Uh, I don't even think Mosque Foundation was, it's, it was intentionally designed the way it was. Like Moss Foundation, the original Moss Foundation was this tiny structure that looked kind of like the Dome of the Rock, but it was white, right? And then they went through a massive construction project making it to the building that it is today. Um, I think that was more fortuitous than by design. Like they had the space to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, most mosques uh, are built on lots where they don't have remotely the amount of space to do that. So, so the point is that... Um, he is saying that there were eras where people consciously tried to figure out, here's how we do and practice our Islam. But I'm saying in the contemporary era, it's just, all right, I want to build a mosque. And a lot of times the mosques are being built more out of whim than actual strategic planning. But is it just based on the current population? I'm saying not even that. I'm saying people just decided they want a mosque. Oh. right? Because if the goal is to build a place for people to pray, then you would also be building, you'd also be renting out, um, you know, strip corner lots, you know, for people to make their local daily prayers, like Fajr and Isha and stuff like that. Right. And then you'd have the bigger mosque um, for the, for the Jummah prayers, because otherwise, the further you get away from that masjid physically, the harder it is going to be just to make Fajr. Yeah. Right? If you got to drive 20 minutes one way just to make Fajr, then very few people are going to do that. Mm. As opposed to the people who live in the neighborhood around Mosque Foundation, who can walk in. Right. When you say people make mosques from their whims, um, don't you think that, that that serves to make those spaces where people can have local musallas? Yeah, but I mean, it becomes, uh, I agree with that, but it becomes a local musallah only for the people who live nearby. So the way Mosque Foundation evolved was that first it was an industrial park, okay, and then it became a residential area. And at first, most of the people who were living in that area were, were not Muslims. Right. And then, then Arabs and other Muslims started moving in, and eventually most of them, non-Muslims started moving out, moving to other places, and more and more Arabs moved in. Right. So it's almost like the vast majority of people in that area are Arab, right? Um, but if you're living in that area, then it's easy for Mosque Foundation to be your musallah. Right. But what, how many families or how many people does Mosque Foundation serve? Give me a number, like the number that they give. I know it fits 3,000 people at once, so say like 3,000 families. So Mosque Foundation serves 60,000 people. That's how many people they claim. Okay. And so the point being, okay, 
there's no way you're going to fit 60,000 people in that. Right. Okay? But more than that, what I'm saying is that okay, even 60,000 people in terms of, suppose all of them lived around Mosque Foundation. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of them will still live too far to go for Jumar Isha mm-hmm. or for Fajr Isha. That's mm-hmm. the point, right? As opposed to setting up musallas for like, all right, all you guys live here, you guys pray here, all you guys live here, pray here, all you guys here, pray here, and then, um, and then for Jumma, come to Mosque Foundation. See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Is that even possible here in America? I think it's very easy. Like that, you know, you rent out the, you know, the shop, the spaces. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very easy. So, when you make a mosque from a whim, is it not still going to act as a, as a musallah like that people can go to? It'll be, it'll serve that function, but most of the time it's going to be empty, mm. right? And, and the point is that it's not made with planning in mind, okay, right? Understand. So, uh, think even about the issue of just expanding. Yeah. Very few mosques are structured be, to be able to take uh, expansion. Um, but they will have elaborate chandeliers. Right? Mm-hmm. And they will have elaborate facades. Right? Um, yet the shoe space will be poorly designed. So like, like for the shoe space, you want to have something where it's easy for air to ventilate through. We have far more than enough architect, uh, architectural um, uh, techniques to do that, but it's usually a very, very nasty space, right? Moss Foundation works, because it's just right out there in the open. Right. Most of the places, it's like this room, yeah. and it just gets nastier and nastier. And that's what I mean by whim, okay. you know, that's not with planning. Okay, let's continue. Unlike many Muslims of today, the Muslims of the Balkans to Bengal complex did not feel the need to articulate or legitimate their Muslimness, their Islam, by mimesis? Is that where I am? By mimesis of a pristine time of the earliest generations of the community, the Salaf. Rather, they felt able to be Muslim in explorative, creative, and contrary trajectories, such as those treated in the six diagnostic questions above taking as a point of departure the array and synthesis of the major developments of the preceding centuries with the Avicinian, Sohrawardian, and Akbarian ideas very much present at the center of this post-formative dynamic. Mm-hmm. So to put this into simple language, what are we saying? That the Muslims did not feel compelled to copy okay, the era of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Rather, they felt con- uh, to try to construct an Islam that was wholly Islamic, but wholly local. And that's why when you look at, you know, the, uh, aside from prayer and fasting, that's um, how people practice their Islam in different parts of the world. Uh, it's very different from location to location. Prayer will be the same, right? But fasting, Ramadan, iftar, that'll all be the same. What they eat the terminology they use will be different. The things they do for holidays for Eid will be different. The prayer of Eid is going to be the same, but the day of Eid is going to be very different. Right? We even condition our society to think of all that as secondary, but that's how you actually live your Islam, that's how you preserve your Islam, through how you do culture. So is that the proper way to do it? I mean, that's the way that's lasted. Mm. Right? Because uh, aren't they technically still following the Prophet, peace be upon him? That's the point. That they would say that there are aspects of the prophet's prophethood that are Arab, right? Right. And then others will say, no, everything that the prophet did should be imitated. That's the, the idea of the salaf, 
And so you'll have daisies who dress in Arab clothes, right? Um, but traditional daisy clothing is wholly Islamic in terms of fulfilling all the requirements of, you know, Islamic clothing. Because they still follow the hadith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They but, just had their culture. But, I mean, look at the way you two guys are dressed. <laughs> right? It's from Bangladesh. Sorry? This is from Bangladesh. Okay, okay yeah. That's, that's <laughs> it. I mean, did you buy it from Bangladesh or you bought it here? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, so, okay, nice mashallah. So, but the point being, look at how you two are dressed. This is made in India. But okay, mashallah, this is probably made in some overseas <laughs> you know, but place I got too. It from here. But, but you're illustrating it with the way you're, you're dressing. Right. Right. And then go to some other part of the world and you'll see people dressing differently. Although everyone's trying to dress American anyway, but the point is, what you're living as your Islam is right here in front of us. Mm. You know? And, and so, so that's the point we're making. Um, in America, though, everybody kind of goes back to, I guess, their community. Mm -hmm. um, is that just because we're in America and there isn't? What does that mean? What does it mean to go back to their community? I don't know. I've noticed in Chicago specifically, um, like, all these little groups like Arabs, um, Desi population, they all go back to dressing the way they do back in their countries. Do they? Some of them do. You? A decent amount of them. Yeah. Like, I mean, like when you go to the masjid, mm -hmm. there's a decent amount who do that, and then there's the other, like I guess, younger generations, or just mm -hmm. the other half who dress as Americans, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, is that also because of that? I'd say uh, in our case, a lot of this is happening um, by evolution than actual planning, right? And so yeah, I'm agreeing with your point. Right. Meaning, you're not going to see too many Desis dress up as Nigerians when they go to the masjid. Right. right? You may see Desis dressed up as Arabs, but you're not going to see Desis dressed up as Afghans, although the clothing similar, or, or Indonesians or something. Um, and, and that is more related to, okay, whatever becomes popular, or the sense of feeling Muslim, right? Or even the simple fact that, okay, if I'm going to the masjid and I dress in my Desi clothes, why is that more Islamic than what I'm wearing right now? Because it feels Islamic. Right. Dress clothes becomes different, right? You know, uh, what you what you wear to an event um, might be also cultural, um, but religious clothes. Um, a lot of that is just this is what we've decided in our community. This is what makes me feel more religious. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Let's continue. In the dynamics of the Balkans-to-Bengal complex, received elements and units of meaning are taken up, elaborated into a new relational and generational complex, and are made productive of new meanings and a new vocabulary of Islam. Like okay. many, so, so the key point being, producing new meanings and a new vocabulary. Yeah. And the best example of that is the word namaz. You guys use namaz also, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, and you use namaz too? Yeah, namaz. No much. Okay, that's totally that was the, the most Bengali pronunciation uh, I've heard. Yeah. So the point is that okay, where does that word come from? It's not an Arabic word. Yet it refers to one thing in particular. Like khuda. Khuda is another example, mm -hmm. right? And so, so we use prayer in English, but prayer could mean du'a, it could mean salah, um, it could mean something else. Um, but you know, in so many of our countries, in this Bengal to uh, Balkan of Bengal complex, we use namaz, and it refers specifically to salah, mm. right? What do we use for dua? What do you guys say? 
like translations, supplications. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm saying like, what do Bengalis use for for gua? Yeah, is that interesting? What you use? Yeah, so do, or the speakers. Okay, but namaz is namaz, mm. right? Mm. And so that's uh, the construction of a vocabulary, a, con a conscious vocabulary. Uh, there's only a few things where we actually keep our terminology. Ramadan, okay. But why do we call it Ramadan, not Ramzan? Oh, we call it Ramazan. I'm saying in America. Oh. Yeah, or the speakers call it Ramzan. Right. right. What do you got call, call it, Ramjan? Probably. Sad ass. <laughs> yeah. And so, so the point being that um, um, uh, a lot of times we will default to an Arabic-ish pronunciation, but it's not Ramadan. What is it in English? Ramadan. Ramadan, right? Yeah. Technically, it's a different letter. That's more dod, you know. Mm -hmm. um, wait, Ramadan. Is it dod or dad? Dod. It's dod. Oh, so it is more correct. Yeah. So. I said, I said Ramadan, though. Yeah, 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 Ramadan, yeah. yeah. But wouldn't it have been easier for the English speaking tongue if we called it Ramzan? Yeah, but it doesn't seem it right. Does it? Doesn't seem right because it's not Arab enough. It sounds foreign. <laughs> it sounds what? It sounds foreign. Yeah, it does, it doesn't it? Okay, but. Ramadan just became part of the lingo. Yeah. Or, what do you call this thing? This? Yeah. Uh, many things, chalda. Okay, and uh, what do you call it in English? A scarf. Okay. I call well, it a scarf. Okay, what does everyone else call it? Hijab, yeah. yeah. Hijab is not even the right term. Yeah. Okay. It's khimar. Hijab has become the term for this. Because mm. somebody somewhere, probably an Arab, started using that term, and then the people started using it, that, that spread. So you think that's a modern phenomenon, the thing that... The namaz, like, so, so what I'm saying is namaz, at some point, I don't know what the history is of the term, but it's fair to assume that this, these are, this is terminology that people actually chose, mm. right? Where we're just like fitting things in, mm. okay, uh, without much thought about it. And a perfect example is hijab, right? Um, That's yeah. what I was saying earlier with the clothes. Like, mm, people kind of default back to Arabic. Yeah, or like, some... Yeah, Arab but I'm style. saying, but I'm saying, uh, uh, it is Arabic style, but sometimes it's just blatantly wrong, like hijab. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying even with outfits, like they'll go back to that because they think that, like you're more Muslim by dressing like them. Yeah. You couldn't just like jeans and a shirt. Yeah, I'm saying, um, is that more Islamic than what I'm dressed in right now? Right. True. And it Blue isn't. shirt, probably made by Muslims, yeah, <laughs> in, in a sweatshop or something, and then, um, yeah, and and so. So, one difference between American society and many of our other back home societies is that you do have a mixture of a whole bunch of different cultures. So, it is a bit harder to try to even figure out what will we make as standard terminology and such just because you have all these different populations. Right. In Chicago, you have a whole bunch of different populations. Not just ethnically, but racially, socioeconomically. Right. So, some of that gets different. And part of it is also the era itself is democratic. So when the era was monarchy, even the way of thinking was monarchy, right? Where you have much more of a sense of some sort of central authority, uh, which could be a scholar in your village or someone else from whom you, you, you listen to. In the era of democracy, it's sort of like everyone is for themselves. And, and not in a narcissistic way, but in the sense that, okay, you've got to figure out these things for yourself. Right. And so that also makes it more difficult to make a lot of these things happen. Globalization definitely has a part in that. Globalization makes it even more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if you look at mine in my closet, I'm like half Moroccan, half Bengali, half Hyderabadi, half American, right? So that's your three things? <laughs> <laughs> Four things, yeah. 
Okay. And where did the Moroccan stuff come from? Saudi. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Sums it up, right? Yeah. And like, uh, where does like the the Moroccan um, like thobe with the hood come from? I have no idea. Jews. Really? Yeah. It was actually uh, Jewish clothing that Muslims took on. Oh. Right. And what's also all the more interesting is like uh, your Moroccan clo clothes that you bought in Saudi Arabia was probably made in China. The thobes that are worn in Saudi Arabia, most of them are, are made in China, making things all the more complicated. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. Like many modern Muslims, many modern analysts too have fallen into what Robert Wisniewski mm -hmm. has identified as our tendency to focus on the earliest period of Islamic history, the classical period between 700 and 1050. And then to assume that this classical distinctiveness expresses something natural in Islamic intellectual history. In other words, the classical period is viewed as a model Islamic disciplinary arrangement with subsequent developments seen as pale reflections or decadent versions of the pristine true. Okay, this is another really important point. That usually when we imagine Islam, we imagine the Prophet peace be upon him's life only. Right? Uh, when your Islam is probably much, much, much more like the Islam of the past 200 years, which I think would just be obvious, right? But when we imagine Islam, we almost imagine it like, okay, the Prophet, peace be upon him, set it up, and then we took it from that. That's almost not even remotely true. Even if you look from the perspective of, okay, what, what do we take as our sources to figure that out? Uh, what Quran, Islam is? Quran, okay, the Quran, but uh, what, what, where do we get our Sunnah from? Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi. So Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi are all 200 years after the fact. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we often think of Bukhari and Muslim, for example, as this is Islam right here. No, Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, etc., they are authenticating narrations, giving their own category system. Okay. Primarily, uh, they're giving raw material for scholars. The approach we have right now is, okay, this is what Islam is. I just open up Bukhari and I find out how I need to practice Islam with no training on how to actually read Bukhari. I was yeah. going to say I got it from my parents. Yeah, Look and so directions. in reality, however, you've gotten Islam more from your parents, your family, your neighborhood, your community. Because if you only think of prayer, okay, fine. Um, but that you've also probably gotten from people in your community. But I'm saying everything about you in terms of how you've been categorized things in Islam, you're getting from your environment. Which means you're also getting it from pop culture. Right? So in your generation, there's more of an impulse for a type of Islamic activism, but focused on what? What is, uh, if you were to think of all the activism um, that is done by your peer groups, what are the causes? Like examples? Yeah. Syria, Palestine. Syria, Palestine, okay, 6,000 miles away. What else? Not Kashmir, not Afghanistan, not Somalia, mm -hmm. right? Um, why so much focus on Syria, Palestine? That's just what's popular. Where? Here. On the news. Right, on the right? news. If, if uh, Central African Republic or Myanmar, for example, was given the same amount of attention on mm -hmm. the news, then you'd probably see a whole lot more of your peers doing it. Right. So what I'm saying is that not only is your contemporary Islam informed tremendously by your family, by your Muslim community, 
it's also informed by pop culture and media, which is motivated by corporate interests. Mm. So we're saying much of our Islam, more than we might even realize, is informed by somebody else's profit motive. And it just happened to play out this way. It's not like people are saying, hmm, what can we get the Muslims to focus on? It's, this is what we can get the people to watch in the news. And when we see that, we're like, okay, that's what we have to focus on, because that's what people are talking about, and that's how it plays out. All the focus that we, the conversation we have about gender is not because people have decided that, okay, there's gender problems in our community. There's a lot of issues that we need to work on in gender in our community. It's because of how much attention people point fingers at us about gender. Mm -hmm. And thus we've decided we have to focus on it. But in practice, we don't actually do anything. I mean, I don't know that much has changed um, because of all the attention that we're given regarding you know, the way gender plays out in our community. I think, at least, there's, there's been, like, like offshoot branches. Instead of, like, the actual fundamental, like, institutions changing, people have made their own thing somewhere else. Give me an example. My, in my mind is the, is the female-led mosque. Okay. In California. Like, that, that, I feel like before the, the, the focus on gender yeah. issues, that wouldn't have, you know... Yeah, I, that I agree with, but my point would still be the same, that that's a fringe. It may later on become a norm, but right now it's still a fringe, mm. right? Um, but how do you know about the female-led mosque? How'd you hear about it? In the news. In the news. Yeah. 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 There's a masjid here um, that I think is open to LGBTQ and to anybody. And yeah. like anybody can pray whoever wants, women and men can stand wherever yeah. they want. I mean, it hasn't really formed. They've been talking about it for, for about a year and a half. Um, but I think they're borrowing a space right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I heard yeah. about that through a friend. Yeah. Still fringe. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, we also, to make the point of fringe, we also have uh, a group of people who say God came in the form of a man and his prophet is Elijah Muhammad, right? That's still oh, right. fringe, although it's much more. But that's the point I'm making. Think about where your Islam is really actually coming from. And in our imagination, it's coming from the prophet, peace be upon him. In practice, community, and very much what's being preached upon us by, by dominant culture. When you mentioned dominant, like, pop culture, do you, what do you, what do you, how do you view, like, kind of a, a defensive attitude that um, when, when everything seems to be criticizing you, people become very defensive? Yeah. And that, how, does, how do you think that influences, like, the growth of a Muslim, uh, young Muslims? So I think, uh, I think that's a very, very important point in, in the sense that much of our Islam is focused on showing what we're not. We're not terrorists. We're not misogynists. We're whatever, right? Not as much focusing on, okay, how do I focus on getting prepared for the Day of Judgment? Well, that would be a very, very different, different approach, mm. right? And so thus, much of our Islam is informed by dunya, by reaction to what is being, we are being hit with in dunya. Yeah. And think about that. Explore that you know, over the next few weeks, especially when you listen to what people talk about. A lot of it is informed by mass media, yeah. which is run by other populations, meaning corporate interests. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. The reflexive logic of this conceptual and analytical disposition which is the principle, the original, is the authentic, bears a peculiar similarity to that of modern Salafism. Yeah. The conviction that the earliest Muslims, primarily the companions of the Prophet, and secondarily the two generations that followed them, constitute the modular 
community whose beliefs and uh, practice embody true Islam. Mm -hmm. I aver that our task as analysts, whether historians or anthropologists, is to conceptualize this post-formative Balkan Bengal Islam as Islam, despite, indeed because of, the inconveniences this task poses to our analytical habits. So, so what is he saying here, basically? That even in the academic study of Islam, the focus is often to think of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his generation as the standard. And he's suggesting this period of time is closer to the standard. Not what is going to get salvation from Allah. That's not what he's addressing. He's talking about how Muslims in the world practice their Islam. That if there is something unified, it's closer to what has been practiced in this Balkan to Bengal complex from those years to those years. Meaning he's saying our Islam is much more like that than it was, than it is like the Islam of the Prophet's generation, peace be upon him. Right. And it's fair to say what we see in that period of time includes a lot of what's from the Prophet's generation, peace be upon him. But culturally, we're way more like them than we are like, you know, the, the Arabs of the 600. Okay, continue. Wait, so we're much more like the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? No, we're more like the Balkans to Bengal. Oh, okay. That, that group, yeah. So, what's preserved, I think, are the principles, right? Like the principles behind what, what, what motivates, motivates us to act. Okay, keep going. So, like even if the culture changes, the reasons why we do things differently, mm -hmm. we have like a... We have a justification for it, right? I think that applies almost only to food. Think of what other aspects of life. Say, like, finance, like, dealing with, with, with uh, interest and stuff. Okay, so the majority spoken opinion is interest is forbidden. Right. Practice, I don't think you're going to find too many people who have zero interest in their lives. I think you find a tiny minority of people who have zero interest in their lives. I feel, I feel like just, like, even if the, 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 the actual, like, text of the Prophet isn't practice, isn't, like, mm -hmm. there with us, like, the, 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 the driving principles that caused him to act, I, I, I want to, I want to think at least that. Yeah, those, I think we all want to think, but I don't think it's true. That those principles, like, still motivate us today. Yeah, I don't think they did. Based off that, um, I know that we have a lot of sayings in Farsi uh -huh. that, um, like later on when I've learned hadith and stuff, it comes from that. Like sure. you can find the root of it. Sure. So like that essence is there. I think we want to think that, I'm saying, I don't think it's even remotely close to that. I think that inside and out, all three of us are far more American than prophetic. Good. I know it stings to hear it, but it's... More Muslim. Good. In name, right, in a couple things that we do. So, okay, let's even speak about interest. Okay, so, so shirk is the biggest sin you can commit, but if you go through the Quran, what does it say about collecting riba? That you're waging war on God. That Allah is waging war on you, right? Right. And what percentage of Muslims would you say are not involved? If we say riba is interest, what percentage of Muslims in America do you think are not involved in interest? Student loans, car loans, house loans, other loans, business loans. Sorry? One percent. Okay, how about this? How about not interest? How about like an orientation towards self like self improvement and, and, and the afterlife? Okay. So you and I have this conversation twenty years from now, and you'll see the vast majority of peers are exactly the same people. The vast majority of who? Of your peers are the same people in twenty years as they are right now. So we all talk about self improvement. 
You know, like, why is almost every chutbah I'm giving saying, what has changed, what has changed, what has changed? Because it's, I'd say for the vast majority of us, it's still only talk. But is that the whole point of Islam? What? That it's all talk? No, that everybody has their struggle. Like, that is being a Muslim. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Everybody has their struggle. I'm saying nobody's struggling in terms of their deen. They're struggling in terms of whether or not to be Muslim. But they're not struggling as much in terms of how to improve in their deen. Look at all your peers, right? Your peers are the minority um, because you're students. And I'd say it's a minority among your peers that are focused on, on actually putting in efforts to improve in terms of, of deen or akhirah and such. I mean, I guess that's true. But I'm saying in a sense that, like, to each, like, individually, each person is struggling in their own sense. Like, for somebody, they might have student loans and car loans and all of this, uh-huh. but they're trying to pay it off as soon as they can. Okay. Or they're trying to, like, for example, not get student loans that okay. have interest on them. Okay. Um, so they are still trying with whatever means they have. Okay. They might not be trying as hard as they should be okay. or as much as would have been the prophetic way, but they're still, like, everybody, to the extent that they can, is trying okay. to something. So uh, think about the language in the Quran regarding food. And think about the language in the Quran regarding riba. Okay, so for food, it basically says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Okay? Right. For riba, Allah and his messenger declare war on you. Right. So we're saying that, uh, it's fair to say everyone has their own struggle. But the amount of attention a common Muslim gives to, mm-hmm. to what they're consuming um, is way more than the amount of attention to, to riba. Right? Assuming Ribba's interest. And I keep saying that because I'm not settled at Ribba's interest. Right. But I try to be interest-free in every single thing I do. Right? And, and so the point being that um, uh, uh, those things should kind of be inversed. Right? Um, and, and so that's part of the point. Even on like our daily language, that's what you're also saying. Like mm-hmm. we'll talk about how pork is haram, pork is haram, mm-hmm. and nobody really eats pork. Mm-hmm. But interest will be like, oh, we're trying, but yeah, you know, God knows what type yeah. of thing. And I'm not saying anyone's doing this in defiance of Allah. I'm right. saying, where is our Islam coming from? The things we've been taught to focus on, right? right? That it's become, the Muslims have been identified, okay, they don't eat pork, right? Um, like, one of the central things of your Islam should be character, right? And I don't think anyone regards this um, as, like, the people of, like, the super, super highest standard of character and stuff. What do you think about all this? It's sad. Yeah. But, I mean, reflect on it. Because, yeah, like, you, you used the right words. I would like to think. But, yeah, I don't think any of that stuff is true. Yeah. Because at least, like, I went to a Muslim school, right? And yeah. we, we, there was a really big focus on, like, character and stuff. So, uh-huh. um, so would you be able to say, uh, and this is for you to reflect, you'll know better than any of us, if you look at the graduates from that school, in general, do they have better character than the other Muslim populations? I'd say there's outliers. In general, I'm saying. Well, explore it. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, well, oh, yeah. Get Reflect on it, yeah. And, and so, what we're talking about is what do Muslims actually do? Right. Right. And... And but isn't that also a societal norm? Like, not just in Islam, but, like, in any... Yeah, but so what about everybody else? We're talking about, like, yeah. you know, our Islam. No, I'm just Maybe. saying, like, human tendencies. A very yeah. few people 
try to improve themselves, or they yeah. might try, but actually achieving it is tough for them. Well, achieving is a different thing. I'm right. even talking about people who are trying, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so what I'm saying is that, uh, um, yeah, that is a human thing you're describing, and thus, yeah, you see it in every other community. But what I'm saying, so what? I'm saying, okay, our lens we're looking at is the Muslims. Right. And we're actually taking much of our Islam from Christians. We're taking much of our Islam from from CNN and all that stuff. Go. Okay, so yeah. even if, forget interest for like okay. uh, and technicalities, yeah. forget self-improvement. How about yeah. just identifying with like the prophet? That's uh, persistent, I think. I do think that we do identify uh, as Muslim, and I do think we still, uh, if someone is insulting the prophet, peace be upon him, I do think we do take it personally. That is something I think we do do. Yeah. You're like, yeah, at least we got something. Marshallah, we got something. No, I think you're correct on that. That if the Prophet, peace be upon him, is being mocked or insulted, we do feel like a sting uh, about it. But even with that, isn't it, we don't deal with it in the prophetic way, I guess. Like, How we, we respond is a different issue. Yeah. I mean, but even that, the people who are lashing out, I think, is a small population. I think, by and large, most of us, and those are the people that are on the news, mm. and that becomes how we imagine ourselves then. But I think most of us, you know, we feel a sting. Um, but um, I don't know that we do much beyond that. Um, but what about all the other prophets? Isa uh, al-Islam gets mocked. He is our prophet. Musa al-Islam gets mocked. Right. Or suppose you have a cartoon and God is a character. What do you think? It's happened. I think uh, I'm suggesting that by and large, a Muslim would be more offended if the Prophet, peace be upon him, is mocked than if God is mocked. You know. I think because the Prophet is something that defines our identity mm-hmm. versus the God is something that is a shared symbol between... Could be, and that could be why we don't get as offended by Isa Islam, you know, mockery of him, which is all over America, all over pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that one of the few shreds that we still have is a connection to the Prophet, peace be upon him, but so much so that we don't get offended if Allah is being mocked. Okay. I mean, it's Allah. Right? I mean, that's, uh, um, I think that sums it all up. But, yeah, think about what else it is that, that we have. But I think the Prophet, the attachment to the Prophet is a good example. Peace be upon him. Uh, I think saying salam is something that we still have. Right. Um, that also depends on where we are. Explain. Um, like when I first came here and like before I wore the hijab, saying salam to Muslims wasn't really a thing that I did. Okay. And before living here, um, it was something that like we got, I mean like within our family when we would meet family members, relatives, you'd say salam uh-huh. obviously to known Muslims, uh-huh. relatives. But to anybody outside, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Interesting. Okay. Just like, hey, how are you? Okay. Even old classmates and stuff. Like now, I say it, especially yeah. as now a you walk in, you're like, "Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi." Yeah. yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but then I see certain, um, especially like when there's incoming freshmen who are Muslims from various places or whatever. Um, sometimes they're surprised, and that reminds me that like it used to not be a normal thing for me to do either. So uh, it depends on okay. who you are. Okay, fair enough. So maybe we don't even have salam. I mean, we Anything do. Else? I mean, I don't want to. I mean, no, but we still, yeah, I still say, yeah. it's fair to say that, okay, it's still common for Muslims to say salam to Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, you're, you're saying it's common for Muslims to also not do that. Uh, and I'd I just say, think it depends on where you live. Fair enough. Uh, I think if someone says salam to you, um, it's uncommon for you not to respond right. with a salam, right? Because that feels like an insult. Yeah. Uh, can you think of anything else? Smiling. Yeah, I don't think so. No. <laughs> Stand up for Juma and you'll see how many people don't smile. <laughs> um, I smile. Us select people. Okay. Mashallah. Um, yeah, think about, think about what else we have. You have this look of just like pain and disappointment. Like, no, this can't be. For shattering everything. This book is. Oh. Okay, let's continue a little bit more. I got this for myself. <laughs> The Muslims of the Bang- uh, Balkans to Bengal complex uh, were in no doubt as to the authenticity of their complex and contradictory post-formative modes of being Muslim, and as to their coherence with as Islam. The logic of our conceptualization of Islam must, therefore, if it is not to be analytically meaningful, if it is to be, oh, if it is to be analytically meaningful. It encompass their conceptualization and must not exclude, marginalize, or deli- delegitimize it. Okay, yeah, so that last point is basically that he is arguing that people in those regions and those eras had much more of a consciousness about their Islam. Okay. I would suggest to, to frame it that for most of us, more than we realize, Islam is a hobby. So if we're following, so like I said, there's like sayings that are derived from Hadith that are prevalent in Afghanistan, and we've carried that over here, and even I, like, am aware of that. Wouldn't that mean that I'm still kind of following them, but in a sense, I am linked to the prophetic? Um, I would say yes. What I'm suggesting is that um, a lot of that is very large in our imagination, but I'm suggesting it's very small in our actual practice and thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, the common Muslim who comes to the Musalla here would feel like, you know, Islam is such a gigantic part of their life. Mm. And inshallah it is, but I'm saying in practice, if you actually look, yeah, it's probably mainly a hobby, especially when people get into their professional lives, it'll become much more of a hobby um, than a conviction. Well, but again, are you talking about the practices of Islam? Like, like what we're supposed to be doing in terms of the five pillars? So I'm saying the, it's or a minority of population that, that makes their prayers. Mm. And the, one of the few things remaining is not eating pork. Right, so you have someone who does every single haram uthbillah, but will not eat pork, mm. right? And to your example, still will have some sort of a connection um, to the Prophet peace be upon him. I don't know what other things there are, but try to reflect what other things there are. You know, and you'll see this like right now you're in student life, so you have this freedom to think and explore and do whatever, not do whatever. When professional life starts taking over, family life starts taking over, then you really see how much Islam do you have. In consciousness, you'll probably be Muslim 24-7, right? In, but that's in your imagination. I'm saying in your practice. Oh. But I'm saying even in practice, making the, the decision of um, doing something with interest or smiling, not smiling, or responding to salam or whatever, like all of that, like aren't you, isn't that also practice? That's practice, yeah. Okay. And I'm saying um, you'll even find very is. few, you know, very few among the Muslim community that are doing Okay. It doesn't mean that we're doing Islam wrong. Mm. I'm just saying Islam is not as present uh, in our lives consciously as much as we think it is. Oh. Yeah. You know, because it may be fair to say that a lot of people are still avoiding a lot of the harams, mm. right? Um, 
there's a lot of things that as a community that are harams that are still considered to be bad. Yeah. Right? Um, but um, uh, in terms of like uh, this connection or this goal of getting ready for the day of judgment, I think in our imagination it's there. In our practice, I don't think it's, it's there very much. Right? Like it is still common. People have the attitude that, okay, they have to go to Hajj. Mm. Right? Even Muslims who are not that religious will have it somewhere in their mind that they're supposed to go on Hajj. Right? Whether or not they do it is a different issue. Right? Uh, or burial should be done in a Muslim way. So, uh, so those things are still there. A, little, a few of those things. But burials once. Hajj is once. Right? Yeah. Prayer is every day. Yeah. The big one, the real big one, is prayer. That's the, that's ultimately the measurement. You know. I'd say character would probably be equal or second. How about du'a? Um, like, even a loosely practicing Muslim still has a sense of God yeah. and still in times of, like, duress would... Yeah, I think that's probably fair, too. Yeah. Probably du'a, too. Yeah. Or at any time. Like, some people just yeah. talk to them. Uh-huh. But meaning the point being that those that don't ever, but maybe when they're in duress, mm. they won't. Yeah. Which could be true of like even non non believers in yeah. general. I mean that that could apply, you know, that probably applies equally to Christians, right? Um, but I think we do have that. Mm-hmm. But isn't that why in Islam? I mean obviously you shouldn't be consciously doing this, but um isn't that why you get rewarded for even a good thought? Uh, I don't understand your point. Because like humans have a tendency to not they have a tendency to be lazy I guess and so isn't there the um, thing that you still get rewarded for having good I thoughts? I mean you get rewarded for having good thoughts but I don't think too many Muslims think about the fact that you know um, I get rewarded for thinking good things right mm-hmm. but I'm saying okay I feel like <laughs> that works okay so explore this you know while I ruin your day you know, no, right? you haven't. like, man, I should have fasted today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll stop here. Subhanakallah, what page is this? 82. Page 82. All right, subhanakallah, ilaha illa anta, wa akhir da'wana, and alhamdulillah,